Welcome to Les Artes de l'Armée, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Lachlan Calores of Warriors of Ash and Descendant Leather. Today's guest is Lachlan Colores. Lachlan is the founding member of Warriors of Ash in Asheville, North Carolina. Lach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, So, Lach, why don't you give us a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in Western martial arts? Well, I started as a kid swinging swords around made out of two-by-fours and um, very... Soon after that, joined Taekwondo and did that through all of grade school and up into high school. Um, would go to state competitions and all of that. And then once I got in the Army, we did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and just regular Western-style boxing. And then after the Army, I did a few months of Hipkido and Melee Salat and just trying to find what really worked for me. I know that I was a martial artist and that's all I wanted to do Um, but it wasn't until 2012 when I saw that New York Times special Mm. video what they did on Mm -hmm. historical European martial arts Um, and at that time I lived uh, in a small town off the Mississippi River over by Chicago and there was nowhere close it was like the closest school was like four hours away from me so I just started training in my basement and uh, waited until I moved to North Carolina and heard about Sword Carolina and started doing their stuff. Very nice. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, I mean, you've been at this for a while then, I guess, since about 2015. 2015. Yeah, 2015 oh, wow. is when I started uh, Warriors of Ash, which I actually started, kind of funny, Warriors of Ash um one week after my first class of longsword at sword carolina <laughs> in south carolina <laughs> so were you doing like sword carolina remotely or was that something that you did were you driving down to south carolina to go do that um i did for the first month um it's only like wow. an hour and 40 minutes um so i would drive down there and take the classes um and then they had the online school, and then they also had an academy for people starting clubs. So they had a really awesome a online cool um, mm. website where not only did they talk about you know techniques and how to do it, but also like how to teach, how to start your club, how to get more members, how to figure out you know the money situation and buying gear and you know just all that kind of stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Aaron. Aaron's a great guy. It's pretty pretty awesome that he has those resources. Yeah, they did a good job on that. Very nice. So, um, tell us a little bit about your military experience and where you served. Well, I spent four years and 16 weeks in uh, the Army. Um, 
I did infantry school at Fort Benning, Georgia. And then uh, shortly after that, I was put into the 101st Airborne Infantry. And two weeks after I got to my first unit, I was in Iraq for my first combat tour. Um, and that was 10 months in Beji, which is northwest of Baghdad. It was an oil refinery town. And then came home for 11 months, then went back for another 15 months in Yusofia, a.k.a. the Triangle of Death in South Baghdad. Um, you know, during that time, I got lots of combat experience, got, you know, multiple accommodation medals. I earned my combat infantry badge, um, all sorts of, um, things were accomplished, I guess you could say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, can you, uh, kind of give us a sense of what the the dynamics of being in a unit in a dangerous environment was like and the sort of interpersonal tensions and how do you how were you able to resolve those and keep everyone focused on your mission um the the goal of this podcast is really kind of give a soldier's perspective in terms of understanding historical martial arts you know like um a lot of a lot of the things that we look at from the historical sources um you know, we see these, obviously from the presentation of the historical manuals, a lot of times these are from a dueling culture, but there was a deeper martial culture baked into the material that was being presented. And, you know, from a civilian perspective, I think, um, especially when you start looking at some of the historical documentation and stuff like that, some of those things get lost. So what is it, what is that, that kind of, um, what is that dynamic like? Well, as far as, you know, everyone being put in a dangerous um, environment, um, that was kind of, especially as infantry, that was our job. Right? Okay. Yeah. Our, our job was to get put in the dangerous environment. <clears throat> um, and with being put in a random group of people, you know, you don't choose your platoon, you don't choose your squad, you don't choose your team. You know, the right. military just puts people in there. And so naturally, there's people that you get along with and people that you don't. I mean, there's just got to be some assholes in the group, right? Just random probability would suggest that. Ab- absolutely. Um, uh, from ones that are, you know, the same rank as you to, you know, your platoon sergeants and uh, LTs. You know, you right. can get some, some pretty... Uh, horrible people, but also some really awesome people. But again, you don't get to choose. So it's like you get, you know, they give you a random 30 people and it's like, pick somebody to be friends with. (laughs) You you don't really get to like weed out. It's like, this is all you get. This is your only option. So you kind of learn to accept things that maybe you wouldn't have um, with those people. Um, But, you know, they train us so well at least when i was in um that it when it came down to doing your job it really didn't matter if you liked the guy next to you because with the training that we did they really stressed all right that person is now gone how do you work without that job being fulfilled And it was made very clear very early on and over and over and over again that when 
people are not there, not doing their job, your job is significantly more difficult and more dangerous. So it really didn't matter if you liked them as a person. It was, were they good at what they did? And we were all really good at what we did. So it didn't really matter at that point. Um, So there's sort of an enlightened self-interest component that makes it so you overlook their personality quirks so that you can kind of just focus on doing the job. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, sense. you could be walking down the, you know, a road in Iraq and be in an argument with one of the dudes and thinking in your head, I hate them. I don't want to spend any more time with them, but I got to spend like the next three years with them. <laughs> God, and, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, RPG gets shot at you and you no longer care that you were mad at them. You just want to make sure that you all get out of there alive. Okay. Got it. So the situation just sort of forces itself, and then they train you to kind of bring that awareness to you so that you're hyper-aware of the fact that you're depending on them and they're depending on you, and everything else Absolutely. is kind of BS. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it really is. You know, when you're, like, not doing the patrols and not doing the combat side of it, when you're just sitting in the tents, then, yeah, all those things come back and people are yelling at each other and, you know smacking each other or fighting each other but <laughs> as soon as we go outside okay. the wire uh which is you know uh, what we call going out of our base right um that all kind of goes away okay. like almost immediately you don't even think about it it's not something you got to turn off it just goes away wow okay crazy yeah that's really interesting i mean we've got we've got a few historical <laughs> examples of situations where what about like i guess uh sort of in not necessarily inter-unit cooperation, but even like working with other units that you don't like. I mean, we're there like, I mean, I, I know the United States military might not be as um, contentious because, you know, looking at the historical narrative, we're talking about like, you know, units of Italians working together with units of Spaniards. And then all of a sudden they just, they end up throwing down because they just <laughs> hate each other and culturally they can't get along, you know? Right. But right. I mean, did, did you experience that as well between like, you know, kind of rivalries between different units? Um, yes. Um, so not only in our own military, um, where, you know, you know, I was, Bravo Company, 101st Airborne, 187 Infantry, like I had my unit and there were other units even in the 101st Airborne that sometimes we would work with, but it was more of the rivalry as in we're better than you and we okay. will do it better than you. Got it. Not as in I want to hurt you, you know, get away from you. It was more like let us take point. We got it. You guys sit there in the rear. We'll take care of it. <laughs> and like, you know, joking with stuff like that. Um, but then also we trained the Iraqi army. And so we would go and be working with their units. And it, it was just such a big cultural barrier sometimes to where, um, you know, at the time I was okay at speaking broken Arabic. And they were okay at speaking broken English. So between the two and then like drawing pictures in the sand, we were able to make it work. And we also had interpreters, but you know, as a, you know, team leader, I didn't get my own interpreter. Our platoon sergeant and PL, they had interpreters. So when we're trying to work with these guys and there became a lot of of tension because they did not understand why we did certain things. And we didn't understand why they didn't see that as important. 
like physical conditioning, for an example. Right. I remember talking to one guy. Um, he was pointing to uh, one of our sergeants, giant, muscly dude. And he's like, what's the point of that? And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, because it's right. you know, broken languages. What's the point of doing all this physical exercise when somebody can just push a button and you explode and you're dead? Like, why would I work on my body <laughs> and being strong if somebody could kill me so easily? And right. it's like really hard to like put to yes, that is true. However, what if your friend gets hit and then you got to pick up your friend and you got to run five miles to get them into a safe position so they can get medical attention? It's like that's why you want to be fit. You want to be fit so you can take care of each other. And, you know, so you could run forever and not worry about getting tired. All those things kind of come into it, but they just couldn't understand at least the unit that we were uh, attached to. And that made it really hard to train them because they just <laughs> didn't want to try oh to God, do anything dude. physical. Wow. That, that's See, it, it's funny because yeah. as, as time has passed, you know, sometimes – it feels like people have changed, but people haven't changed, you know, like mm -hmm. one of the historical examples that we have from, you know, I think the 1508 is the Spaniards um, f fighting with the, uh, the Italians um, in the Romagna. And one of the things that the Italians just didn't like is they thought the Spanish soldiers were lazy and that they had absolutely no concept of hygiene. And they said that the Spanish soldiers were literally shitting everywhere. Like they would shit in old wine casks that were empty. They would shit in, <laughs> in, in cups. They would shit oh, everywhere. Man. And they would just like leave their shit laying around. And that really pissed off the Italians. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and so there was this like huge, huge brawl that ended up, uh, you know, kind of corresponding off of that. But, you know, I just, I think it's funny that people haven't changed that much. Yeah. So uh, before we move on to the next question, um, I, one of the things we're kind of looking at is like how units sort of held together in the Renaissance. Now, uh, so you said you were part of the 101st Airborne, right? Yes. So that's pretty much like the most famous kind of division in the United States military, as far as I know. What did that kind of matter to how people felt about themselves or their unit at the time? Or is that just, is that just window dressing? No, absolutely. Um, so there's a few units that are popular. 101st is definitely one of the most known. Um, but then because of that, then there's also inside the 101st, there's different brigades and battalions. And so we are all the 101st, but it's also like a competition of who's the best brigade, who's the best battalion, who's the best company, who's the best platoon. And for us, I was in the 187th Infantry Regiment called the Rakasans. And Rakasan means falling umbrella. And they were the first um, foreign unit to land on Japanese soil in war. I have that, mm. oh, that ah, type okay. during World War II. So they called us the Rakasans or falling umbrellas because that was the first time they saw oh, paratroopers right. jumping out of airplanes <laughs> and landing on their you know cool. backyards. Um, so they kept that name. And our unit insignia, well, in, insignia was the Japanese Tori. I don't know if you know I what don't that know looks that. like. But yeah. <clears throat> um, 
but with that going overseas, we, at that time period, the 101st, when I was in, so that would be 2005 to 2009, um, the 101st had the most deployed months in combat in the entire military. Right. Not just the Army, but the Army, the Marines, the Air Force, the Navy, we had the most deployed months because we had that reputation. And because of that mm-hmm. reputation, then you get, you know, uh, the commanders and, you know, sergeant majors that want to uphold it. So they push everything harder. They train everyone harder. Everyone wants to train harder to uphold that reputation of being the best. Got it. So you don't want to be the guy that causes the unit to lose face, essentially. Like you Absolutely. have something to maintain. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, Lachlan. Yeah. So um, when it comes to kind of developing that unit cohesion, were there particular parts of training that facilitated that cooperation under pressure? Uh, absolutely. Um, so to prepare for just in general, um, being in infantry, but specifically preparing for going back to Iraq, um, we would go out and do like two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve day missions where we would go and do really intensive, as close to realistic training as we could, where like, you know, We'd be using blanks. We'd be using live fire. And even in live fire exercises, um, the trainers would come out and be like, boom, you're dead. What is your team going to do now? They just lost their team leader. Hmm. And having people having to learn that keeping your people alive is important because it gets a lot more difficult when you just (laughs) lost half of your platoon because somebody messed up. And... like it even went to the full aspect. I remember one time uh, they had these cards that you put in your vest and you weren't allowed to look at them. They were in an envelope. And when somebody said that you were hit, you'd pull out the card, open it up, and it would be your wound. Whether you're dead or you have this type of wound or this type of wound and this type of wound. And while they're under fire, they have to treat that wound. Right? And if you end up getting, and it happened to me once where I got like a sucking chest wound. And so I was in a tower and they had to get me down a ladder, like while I was pretty much unconscious, like acting like I was unconscious, get me down a ladder onto a litter. Then four guys, two holding the litter and two pulling security had to run two miles with me on this litter. And I'm just like laying there staring up at the sky and like bouncing all over the place and like really trying to be like, what would this be like if I was injured and how terrifying that would be. And then yeah. like they're squatting on a tree line and somebody's there and they're calling in a helicopter and they bring in a black hawk and the black hawk lands and they pick me up and they're going and they're sliding me in the black hawk and then we fly away. And I was like they were doing that to everybody to kind of show like what it's like to be put in that situation. And you don't want anyone to be put in that situation. So they did a really good job of, like, what happens when you lose people? What happens if you're the one that is being taken away and you can't be there for your guys? What that feels like. And knowing that, like, as I'm in this helicopter flying away, my team is back there going, what the hell are we supposed to do now? Because our team leader's gone. Um, So really, yeah, that's a... Seems like it really emphasizes not being stupid. Like it really, yeah, doesn't always work, but that's their goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, you know, it reminds me of a quote from Manchiolino, the mother of all wisdom is experience. I think, yeah, was that Anonimo? Developing that empathy. Or maybe Uh, that was Manchiolino. That was Manchiolino and Anonimo. Anonimo has the same basic idea. Yeah, the same author, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) That's a whole other tangent. (laughs) They did a really good job of making us understand how difficult it becomes when somebody goes down. And not just because of their life, but just because of why you're there, the mission. Um, How difficult it is to carry somebody for miles while under fire. How difficult it is to then resume your mission, even though you're missing these people. And like, it just really makes it to where, kind of like I was saying, when you walk outside the wire, you no longer care if you're mad at somebody because you want to make sure you do their job, your job, so that they don't have to, your buddies don't have to do your job for you. Right, it's essentially like yeah. cutting limbs off of a team, and so yep. they have to try to keep going with just less limbs. Yeah, which is difficult. And that kind, that that kind of reminds me a little bit too of a conversation that we had at Raleigh Open Lock, where you know we were talking about the idea of you know, and this is this is definitely a foreign concept, I think, to people who don't have that experience of learning how to operate injured under pressure and deal with your injuries you know, because you can't step away. Right. And, uh, you know, there are times when, and and I can imagine from the perspective of a historical period, you know, there's going to be a time when, you know, you might have a broken arm, but you can still use that arm in some capacity and you're still fighting and you're still, you know, you're still holding your place in the line because if you step away, everybody around you is going to collapse. Yep. Kind of like the Anonymo says that you should make sure to train with both hands because it'd be a real shame if you had to give up because you your one hand that you knew how to use was broken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So overall in our podcast, we've been interested in how Polynesia swordsmanship has applications for military training. Um, how does unit training usually differ from individual training? So they're similar and different, obviously, Um, like similarities of, you know, how important basics are now as an individual, you know, basics as in, you know, repetitive motions, going through guards, going through steps, going through motions, reviewing techniques, but it's the same way in unit tactics, it's just on a bigger scale. So it's still... How do you do these movements? How do you do these attacks? How do you do these techniques, but on a large scale? Um, Creating that muscle memory, whether you're by yourself or with a group, is still extremely important. Um, And then differently, you know, when you're on an individual basis, your knowledge, your advanced knowledge as an individual makes makes a lot of sense. But if you're just stuck in a group of 100, you could be the smartest one there, but if you're not in charge of everything, it's not going to really make much of a difference besides what you're doing. Um, okay. Examples of like when you're by yourself and you're doing individual training, what you do is what's going to matter, right? You do all the jobs. You're by yourself. Right. You have to guard yourself. You have to protect yourself. You have to attack your target. But when you're in unit tactics, um, a main difference is you no longer get to do everything. You have one job. Like, as a private, 
um, one of the things that they really pushed on you is you have a sector of fire. So if you have a 360 degree circle, you have 15 degrees of fire, and you do not even look at other fire sectors. This is yours. Everybody else will take care of theirs. Don't turn away, because if you turn away and somebody comes in your sector of fire and you don't take them out, then you just killed somebody. So it was like, you didn't get to do everything. You had to focus on one small part and give up that wanting to look on your back or look to your right or look into your left because somebody else's job was to do that. And if you both did the same job, then something wasn't getting done. I can imagine pike formations would probably be a bit like that, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you left your sector to go, you saw an opening on somebody like three people down and went to go do that and then a spear came in your opening and killed your buddy yeah. next to you. It's like, well, you left your sector. Yeah. Oh, never would have thought about that. Thanks, Lachlan. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, and I mean, from Warriors of Ash perspective, you guys do uh, quite a bit of, of unit training overall in, uh, in, in more of a Gleema focus, I think. But, um, you know, would you... How does that experience relate and some of the experiences that you've had with unit tactics and um, kind of developing that from a historical perspective? Uh, So a lot of the stuff, um, I I think that kind of gives the Wars of Ash its difference with some uh, human schools is because Mike and I are both combat vets and we've both learned this way of not only training, but what it's like to train by the book, and then uh, what you actually do in combat that is kind of like the book, but it's really not anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, It gave us, especially with uh, group combat, that idea of how to make sure we as a unit survive. And it's not about how many people you got or how many times you defended yourself. It's about the group. Right. And uh, when you first get people into a line and, you know, we see at October effect, um, mm-hmm. especially in the beginning before people get used to fighting in a group, it's a whole bunch of individuals out there. Even though they're standing in a line, they're not really, they're trying to hit the target and block themselves, but they're not trying to block the person next to them. Right. They're not, right. their main focus isn't making sure that they're left is guarded and their right is guarded and the other guys are doing the same thing and the other guys are doing the same thing all the way down the line it's i have this tunnel vision i have a spear there's somebody in front of me i'm going to stab them as many times as i can most people don't think about the person next to them until you start doing it and then all of a sudden you realize that nobody's around you anymore because everyone got killed and you're there by yourself and then you're like oh shit maybe uh maybe next time i should try to defend my my uh line buddy Um, But knowing that from a standpoint, like when we do our group combat, that's some of the first things we do where we'll put everybody in a line and give them all shields and it doesn't matter what other weapon they have. And Mike and I would stand in front of them with pole axes and make them defend themselves where they can't move from their line, but we can move wherever we want. So defend the person to your left, defend the person to your right, defend yourself and they should be defending you. So it kind of like creates this thing of we all have to do it together. Um, and I, I felt like that worked really well. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. So uh, I wanted to add one on here that I think is kind of related. Um, so 
if you had people who had individual, you know, had the individual training and in how to use their weapons and that sort of thing, how much faster would it be to take them and make them into a unit compared to a group of people that were basically untrained? Well, I guess that really depends on the situation. And this I is mean, in a if, historical situation, of course. Yeah. I, I mean, historically, you know, whether you're talking, you know, the 800s, the 1200s, mm -hmm. the 1600s, the 2000s, people are people. Right. Um, so if you take skilled people that are used to working on their own, they're going to have a hard time working on a team. At, right. at least at first, okay. but they are going to be more effective in advanced situations. Whereas it is easier to get people to work together when they don't feel that they have the individual skill to do good on their own. Mm -hmm. So they're, they cling to each other and they want that help. Whereas right. individuals are like, I got this. Okay. That's um, interesting. So okay. holding a line or moving in group formations, they might not be able to, um, make the best attacks mm -hmm. that they'll be able to hold and mainly because they're scared. <laughs> and when you get somebody that's scared next to a guy that's scared next to a guy that's scared next to the guy that's scared, they're really good at not moving. <laughs> <laughs> they will stand there and they will not move. <laughs> Got it. So fear makes the unit stronger. Uh, fear makes the unit stand still. Got it. Interesting. I wonder, <laughs> I want to, I, I, should I draw this back to Lamota, Stephen? Because I've got a lot. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, I, just wanna... I don't know if we should because we don't want to let people know about Lamota until we get to that in our story, right? Do we want to save it? Yeah, let's save that because we don't want to. Well, what if, what if I give just broad anecdotes? All right, all right. Go ahead, go ahead. Because, I mean, we've got some experiences of certain situations where, you know, have you have you ever experienced anything where like you do have a relatively green unit or a unit that's like for example when you were training the like native uh forces of either Afghanistan or Iraq where you know there was unit integration but the courage of the unit that you were working with just basically failed and it, it created sort of a dynamic situation where you had to adapt to the fact that you just lost like half your fighting force. Yeah. Um, so in teaching the Iraqi army, once they got to the point where we felt that they were good to go out on patrols and missions, um, we would be their, um, their outer force. So it's like, oh, example, we want you guys to take this building this is how we want you to do it. We are going to be around you to support you and to help you if you need it. And it would more often than not. Now, granted, we were active duty infantry from the United States. We had great training. That was our full-time job versus people were kind of thrown into it. Um, but we almost always, every time we went out, we would have to go in and save them because they would just collapse. Um, whether it be from a security standpoint of just randomly letting cars drive into their unit um, and either hitting somebody or blowing up or 
like that same kind of thing I was talking about of getting bogged down of because of that lack of training and that fear, which everyone has fear Mm -hmm. that never goes away, but how you control it of them getting stuck in a hallway, getting stuck in a room, getting stuck behind a wall and they did not have the courage to advance. Whereas we have so we had so much training and so much used to it that if we were walking down the street, which happened multiple times, and all of a sudden everything just unleashes hell and a whole bunch of small arms fire comes flying at you, you don't hide behind cover. You take cover quickly as you move up to the target to take it out. Because if you don't take them out, then you're not going to live. But they didn't have that um, ingrained to them like we did. Because the the amount of training, the length of training, just wasn't just wasn't there. Got it. Yeah, that's perfect perspective. That's that's kind of exactly. I think that, that fits exactly. That ties exactly what we had. Of. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, I mean, so training what, is really everything. It, it really is like, even if you don't have the means for the technology or for the ammo just doing the motions over and over again, just like we do with our swords to make it to where you don't have to think about it anymore. You know how to strike correctly. You know how to move correctly. You know how to move with your buddy correctly. You know, in this situation, based on everything around you, because you've done a thousand different simulations a thousand different times, and now you know what to do. It just happens versus having a fraction of that training and you don't know what to do because you're kind of just you're everyone's looking at each other like I don't know what to do I don't want to run out there do you want to run out there no all right cool let's stay here <laughs> got it so it's like you'll just you kind of can't screw up because you've done it so many times that you're already kind of reacting to it before you even know what's going on absolutely yeah you're moving before you even made the decision that's interesting so I mean you you mentioned fear and you know, fear is, is something that you, I think even, even people who have just experienced uh, HEMA from just a, a surface level have probably in some way experienced some fear of something and learned how to, I mean, hopefully at that point they've learned how to compartmentalize that fear. But how, are there things that you're taught to help put you in that space, put you in that headspace where you're compartmentalizing fear or you're suppressing whatever emotions that you're feeling in those moments? Um, no, at least not in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very much the, this feeling of being in the infantry of everyone pretended they weren't scared and that they weren't fearful. And then if anybody said anything otherwise, then you would get hazed or made fun of. If you said you had mental issues or you wanted to talk to somebody, you now had to go to, quote, the wizard, and you would lose your job position and nobody would trust you anymore. You couldn't ask for help or talk about your fears because they would destroy you because of that. So it was a very unhealthy way of, of dealing with it. But because of that, it forced everybody to ignore it, to push through that. And again, I don't think it was the right way to do it. Um, But I remember one time I was a Bravo team leader of my squad and I was talking to my buddy who was the alpha team leader. And we were sitting outside and this was during my second tour. And 
I was like, man, I just, I don't know if I am actually cut out for this life. Like, I'm good at my job. I like what I do. But, like, I am scared all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, every day, all day, when I go to sleep, when I wake up, when we walk out, when I'm taking a shit, like, I'm always scared. Right. And he's like, yeah, man, we all are. <laughs> and it was like, I never thought about that because you were never allowed to talk about it. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you're doing, I mean, yeah, man, I'm terrified all the time, too. Everyone's terrified. Everyone's scared constantly. Like, it's just, you know, you're not alone. And, like, that really, like, you know, glass shattering in my head. Because, like, the whole time I'm trying to, like, hide it and trying to hide it and trying to hide it because I don't want everyone to know that I'm scared because you're not allowed to talk about that. And then when I brought it up, the one time I brought it up, and I was like, yeah, man, we're all on the same boat as you. So at least you know then there's nothing wrong with you. I mean, it's right. just... exactly. Like, yeah. why wouldn't you be scared? You'd have to be insane not to be afraid. You would. Yeah. Stephen, do you think that relates a lot to kind of the Italian concept of virtue? And where virtue kind of comes in as a societal pressure of people to suppress those feelings. And, and that's where we kind of get that handed down. And if that, if you think that's a mentality that kind of transcends that, so, you know, yeah, I think this is so centuries. I, the one thing that I always am leery of is, you know, kind of making people in the past inhuman. I mean, it, clearly there was a social pressure to not be, uh, afraid and not to, you know, not to show fear. But on the other hand, you know, like Moroto says, everybody talks about how they would rather die than surrender. But when it actually comes down to it, 99 out of 100 people are going to throw up their hands and give up because they're afraid. So, you know, right. so, so I think virtue is sort of a driving force, but people were, you know, kind of like Lachlan says, it's in all these situations, people are still just human. Well, that's, that's what, kind of what I was getting at is that the concept of virtue that we see in the historical sources was just a way to sort of mask that fear with societal pressure. You know, kind of like the way that Lachlan was talking about how there's, you know, there's this ethos of not speaking about fear. Do you think that virtue is basically that? For a, is just that? Yeah, for a warrior, that would be the case. I think so virtue is all about, I think basically just be a badass at whatever it is that you do and don't let anything get in the way. So if you're a fighter, then not being afraid is your virtue. But if you're a painter, well, you know, that's not what really matters. What matters is being the absolute best painter in the world. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. But that's virtue, so maybe we should explore more. Um, should we yeah, so, Locke, when it comes to, um, you know, drawing this back to a HEMA focus, in, in terms of um, what, what sources do you use and... What's something that kind of drew you to those sources? So when I first started deciding that I was going to pursue HEMA specifically, um, my my main interest was I just wanted to learn how to fight with an axe. Like two-handed axe, pole arm, <laughs> hand axe. That. Like that's what I wanted. And there was really not much at that time that I knew about that showed that at all. Um, so when I found Sword Carolina and they were doing, you know, KDF longsword, uh, specifically Dobringer, um, I was like, well, 
I don't necessarily want to pursue longsword, but maybe if I train in longsword and I train in the other sources that we do have available, then I can learn the body mechanics to where I can just teach myself the axe and come up with my own stuff if I can't find it. Um, so I started with uh, Sword Carolina and everything that I learned from them through their online school um, and going down to them. That's primarily what we taught. In the beginning, it was it was just longsword. Um, and I wasn't doing a lot of source reading, um, cause you know, I started teaching a week after I started learning. Um, so I was pretty much <laughs> teaching what I was learning from right. Sword Carolina at that time period. And then we were also doing our Viking combat or our Dark Ages combat. So that's when we were really experimenting with how can we use these things? We have no sources. But there are other sources from later periods that we can kind of like take from this, 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 adjust it slightly. But mainly for our Dark Ages combat, it was let's make the historical weapons and beat the crap out of each other and figure out what works. And it worked really well. We would spend days coming up with techniques either based off of Longsword or based off of like Paul's Hector, Mare's polearm or halberd stuff or even looking at dueling shield rotella like and adjusting it um, because there were no sources for that um then i wanted to get into researching stuff myself i was like you know i'm, I'm taking all this stuff from sword carolina and it's great and their instruction was awesome and i was doing well in tournaments and my students were doing well in tournaments but i wanted to get closer to the source so then I started reading Fiore and going through that. And I started a Fiore class where we would do grappling, dagger, and longsword all in the same class where each one lined up with similar principles. Yep. And I loved that. That was really awesome. Um, <clears throat> as far Fiori's as... The man. Yeah, I, I really enjoy Fiore stuff. Um, I've dabbled in doing small classes on like... Uh, Mayor's Dusak uh, for a few months, and um, but mainly it's been started with Dobringer, moved to Fiore, and then kind of experimented with the Dark Ages Viking combat, um, and really just pulling from every source that we can get our hands on that had anything to do with it. That's cool. So, um, you know, given the sort of duality of your experience. Um, both from a military perspective, but also from learning the, you know, the historical training methods and individual training methods that come with those. Um, how do you think that unit and individual training would have been like during the time of somebody like Fiore, or perhaps even some of the Bolognese sources that you might have looked at? I think that it would have been exactly like it is now. Um, and I mean, as in, like I said earlier, like it doesn't matter what time period, the body is the body and people are people. Um, so yes, the technology is different, right? We're gonna have different formations and you know, different time periods have different forms of combat, but group versus individuality has been happening since war was war. Mm -hmm. Like you have your single individual fighters and you have your group fighters and generally when warfare comes into your group fighters are going to be the ones that do better than the individuals and you know we saw that you know even 
way back, like, Roman area when they were going around conquering people who didn't fight in formations. It was much a mob of individual fighters, and they could not go up against full uh, formations, which is just like it is now. Like, for example, when I was in Iraq, we were a cohesive unit. And we were fighting a whole bunch of guerrillas that weren't really in a cohesive unit. They're all just kind of like up on rooftops doing their own thing and running when they were on the run and had no communication. And we rolled them. It was just, it wasn't, you couldn't even compare it. But, you know, that's a, a thousand year difference, but it's the same concept. Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually, that's super interesting because it... it... <laughs> Looking at the historical narrative, it it seems like there are some condottieri in particular that are more successful than others, you know. And since we're looking uh, from this perspective primarily at the at the you know the 16th century and and late 15th century, you know there there are some guys who seem to get it, and they've got you know great unit cohesion and they're kind of legendary for that you know like one of the characters that we're going to spotlight in our upcoming episode uh for maestro wars our, our series that we're doing on this historical narrative is ramazzotto and you know one of the things about ramazzotto is he was often in charge of these uh bolognese mountain units and i don't know what it is about you in the mountains and and people who are just like hard people growing up in the mountains <laughs> or living in the mountains it seems to it seems to be that the hard places breed hard people. Um, and I guess it's just a perspective also of community too. You know, I think that might be a part of it is that there's more of a sense of community that kind of changes that individual focus. But, um, you know, Ramazzotto took the Bolognese mountain forces and basically kind of brought them to a height of, of fame where, you know, they're, they're real big stand where they kind of really, uh, separated themselves from you know the chaff was at the battle of ravenna where they stood up against you know the gascon forces of of uh, gaston de foix and the french and you know just basically kicked their ass under like heavy cannon fire they also had a fight with them over loot in uh two years before that and killed 40 of them as well so (laughs) the gaskins and the uh and the bolognese mountain troops i think had some a little bad blood between them they did but it's it's interesting that you know i mean for the most part this wasn't this wasn't like the bolognese elite it wasn't right um you know, it wasn't even like the rural people of Bologna. This was just a, a group that lived in the Apennine Mountains that got together and they had that sense of, of unit cohesion and were able to just go out there and, you know, make a name for themselves and actually, like, just kick ass. So I I just find that really interesting. So, um, especially, um, how do you think that... Uh, if we kind of turn the focus away from just like group combat or um, the cohesion of, of groups and stuff like that, um, how do you think that training with pole arms might have manifested in terms of um, kind of developing a unit? Like, as in why pole arms were developed or why pole arms were used in units? Yeah, so I guess a little more of the latter. Like how how if you were putting together a unit to that was using primarily pole arms, 
um, like how do you see that developed? Like what are what do you think are some things, especially from your experience with uh, you know Warriors of Ash and you guys doing group combat? I know you guys use a lot of pull arms, and we'll talk about Descendant Leather here in a minute. But um, you know, is there is there something that you when you're lining your your people up and you're telling them okay you know like like you were talking about before this is your sector of fire this is what you're focusing on are there people given different responsibilities is this person hooking is this person you know going after somebody's feet you know stuff like that yes absolutely um <clears throat> usually we try to put somebody with an axe head next to somebody with a spearhead cuz mm. the axes manipulate and the spears can thrust now an axe can also do all those things too but it's really good at grabbing and pulling and manipulating not only shields but other weapons body parts helmets grab move them so that the person next to you can take them out if you just have a whole bunch of people grabbing people and pulling them down but there's nobody to actually take advantage of that manipulation it makes it really hard and with pole arms um, you know, with our trainers, it's hard to see, but with pole arms, we've done sharps work with pole arms and shields, and they get stuck a lot. Right. Interesting. They get stuck into the wood, and you don't get the option to then immediately take advantage of that situation. So having the pole arms or pole axes specifically to manipulate when they can, and having the spears. Or even if it's two pole arms next to each other, just one person's job is to manipulate while the other person's job is to exploit. And those jobs can switch. Like it's more advanced, but usually it's like your job is this, next person, your job is opposite. And going down the line, so you have someone on either side of you that's doing your opposite job. And everybody can help each other out. Cool. Yeah, I never would have thought of that. That's neat. Do you think that's why, so this is kind of a off-the-cuff question here, but do you think that's why we see the evolution of pole arms, where we see a lot of, you know, you might have a, a pike, for example, but then you'll have something like an Italian bill or something mm -hmm. like that, where you have the evolution of these longer pulled weapons that have a lot of these hooking protrusions and things like that? Absolutely. I mean, you can grab anything. You can grab shields, armor, grab somebody's chainmail, pull them to the ground. And like especially with like the Italian bill, you also have that giant spike on the end. So even if you're not grappling, but the guy next to you is grappling or manipulating them, then you can use your spear. And it's almost like it, it seems like they evolved into like a polearm leatherman. You know, it's like mm -hmm. you have all these different options. I can stab like a spear, but I could also mm -hmm. hook a leg. I can spike into the armor. I can grab onto the chain mail and pull it. I can hook onto the shield and pull it. I, you know, there's so many different um, uses for it versus I can either cut or thrust. You know, it just it opens up um, what you can do. Uh, the more manipulation that you can have in your line for the people, or how 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 do you put that? If you can imagine a line of pole arms, right? And every other person, their job is to manipulate. And then everyone in between that, their job is to exploit it. When that happens, you can take out the other team's front line really quickly. Grab, pull it out of the way, the other person kills. 
And it's just like when it's a whole line doing that, it's devastating. Yeah. Especially yeah, against people that. that aren't working together as a group and just sort of individually yeah. looking for openings. That would be hard and to And then fight. if you have two sides both doing those tactics, then both sides just get demolished. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating to me, right? Because there's, um, I don't know if you've ever read this, Locke, but um, Machiavelli wrote The Art of War, or his, his Art of War, right? Not mm-hmm. Sun Tzu's Art of War, but... Um, and one of the things that he always kind of condemns the condottieri for, and this is relative to the contemporary period that Stephen and I are kind of writing about and studying, is that a lot of times the condottieri, men-at-arms, and various um, you know knightly groups um, had a tendency to work as individuals, or even if they did have a lance, for example, their lance tended to act as an individual within the collective body of an army. And that's what usually led to a lot of the failures that he saw. And so he actually purported that everybody should form a militia similar to, um, you know, what the Swiss were doing and used uh, Vegetus and the Romans, like you had talked about earlier uh, with the, where the Romans, you know, they were renowned for their organization and it basically let them steamroll everybody. And that's kind of what Machiavelli purports is, hey, let's go back to what the Romans were doing because they kind of had it right. You know, mm-hmm. let's let's look at this this massive success of uh, a, an Italian empire and let's try to recreate it. But um, so, I, yeah, that's that's pretty, pretty dynamic. Um, yeah. So, um you know, uh, from as well as, uh, you know, just being a, uh, a human instructor and, uh, sort of, a, having an awesome school that, you know, competes well and, and has had a lot of success throughout the, the Piedmont and the Southeast of the United States. Um, you also, um, do leather work and make pole arms. Um, can you tell us, um, a little bit about, uh, descendant leather? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So uh, not only do I do custom leather work from neck protectors, leg guards, arm guards, um, chest protectors, um, I can make pretty much anything out of leather at this point. I've been doing it for so many years. Um, Mostly what I do is custom work, um, but on our website and what we do most of as far as volume is the pole arms. Uh, When it started, when I started trying to figure that out, I wasn't doing it to like make a company and sell them. We were just trying to figure out how can we fight with axes and not put each other in the hospital. <laughs> yeah. Highly and useful. It, <laughs> and it, it was really difficult in the beginning. <clears throat> I mean, we went from let's make them out of leather to hardened leather to melted down blue barrel plastic and padded those with leather. Tried to pad that with foam. Those, by the way, do not work and really really hurt a lot um and we just kept exploring with different um materials to see like what how can we find a material that is safe enough to hit each other full force but also stiff enough to where you can still use a poleaxe for what it's used for manipulating and thrusting and cutting and all the great stuff without it falling apart or being too floppy um, and 
after about four years, we finally found the right material. And even when that happened, we were making it just for our school, you know, and then we'd come out to events and we'd bring our kind of crudely put together, you know, like bolts and nuts and like they weren't very pretty, but they worked. Um, and then as people started asking me, like, hey, can I get one of those? And I wasn't even trying to sell them. People were coming to me and asking me for them. Um, then I really started thinking like, well, maybe I could sell this because the more people that have pole arms, the more people I get to fight with <laughs> pole arms. Exactly. Uh, so why not create a product of it? And uh, you know, over the last, I guess, year and a half now, I've been making so many of them, and you know, they keep evolving and they're getting better and better as far as the um, construction of them, so that they last longer and work well. Um, they're just they they're just awesome. They just ended up being really awesome, and it's only because a whole group of us decided to smack each other in the face with random <laughs> objects made out of different materials to see what worked. <laughs> yeah, no, um, you know, I can obviously I I can speak from a personal perspective on this one because I have quite a, a number of your pole arms at this point. Um, you made me a spiedo, and I also have uh, a partisan and an Italian bill that you made, and um, you know. In my perspective, I've done testing uh, for different companies for pole arms. Um, sometimes people will send me things, and um, I I have not personally found a better pole arm on the market. Um, you know, we've uh, this year. Uh, you know, we used your pole arms at Queen's Gambit um, and your your partisans in particular, and uh, they were they were just fantastic. I mean. You know, Eric Lowe was able to run a partisan tournament and, you know, have, even though it was an invitational tournament, still go through that entire tournament with the intensity of the the tournament itself with no injuries, no, like, no craziness going on at all. Um, you know, and a, and a big testament to that was the fact that we were using safe, effective trainers, but having been a part of that tournament and experiencing that from a firsthand perspective, you know, I never felt like I was sacrificing the ability to do techniques, especially from a Bolognese perspective, because I was using a trainer. I felt like I had everything at my disposal. They feel like partisans. They, they act like partisans. They work like partisans. Um, and, uh, I mean, they're just, they're sick. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Thank yeah. you. And they're only getting better. You know, especially hey. like at, at Queen's Gambit, you know, I've made a lot of them, but to see that many of them and be able to stand there in the middle of the gym and watch all these fights going on and seeing the way they're reacting on, you know, not just like having one in our school and somebody's using it. I see it sometimes, but to seeing a whole bunch of them being used over and over and over and over for like three hours. And yeah. it kind of like gave me a, you know, I changed, have changed some of my construction since then to make certain changes that I saw that I think would be better. And it's like the more that we've been doing this and more people have been getting them, like I have been trying to master this material and how to get the most effective trainer we can out of it that is not only safe, but also like you said, you can use techniques with it. You can grab with it. You can parry with it you can stab with it you can cut with it and it's not going to fail you and you don't have to worry about hurting somebody while doing so 
Now, yeah, don't get me wrong. They still hurt. Like, I mean, you can whack them, yeah. but it's just like a long sword. Like, sometimes they yeah. hurt, but that's a good thing, right? Stuff. Like, yeah. exactly. They're yeah. Supposed I mean, to you hurt. still you you still <laughs> yes. want feedback. Yeah, you just, yeah. yeah. You just want to avoid broken things because then people can't exactly. train. So I tell my students yeah. all the time: it is okay to get hurt. It is not okay to get injured. Right. Yep. And I, I think one of the other things, too, uh, that I really love about the material you're using specifically is that, you know, with with, you know, you were talking about with training with sharps and, and using sharp pull arms and things like that and experimenting with sharp pull arms and how they grab. One of the things that I noticed specifically about your pull arms when you're fighting um, against anybody, what doesn't matter what pull arm they have, you know, for example, I, I ended up fighting in the finals at Queen's Gambit and, and winning gold, but the guy that I was fighting against was using a Purple Heart Partisan. And one of the reasons why I chose your polearm is, one, because it's shorter, and Manchialino says to use shorter weapons against longer weapons. So I was like, okay. I, I heard Manchialino in my head. But two, um, I knew that it would grab. And one, it had great lugs, right? Yours had better lugs than the Purple Heart Trainer. So I knew that I could I could hook. I could. Uh, I think Manchialino calls it pitchforking. Um, so I knew that I could pitchfork. And um, so, you know, one of the things that I noticed about it, though, is that the the material that you use also binds. So if you catch somebody on their blade, you can go for blade binds and kind of play at those blade binds and play at binding dynamics with those um, pole arms, which is, you know, an, an experience that you're not going to get with any other pole arm, especially like the rubber or plastic ones that are going to kind of fold and bend. Um, mm -hmm. and they're not going to have that, that tactile feedback. So that's something that I thought was super interesting. Have you thought about doing like swords like that to do like a, a sharp simulator? So I've made some deuce X, uh, okay. and I, I still got to mess with the design of them. I'm still working on it. The problem with that material is it only comes in such a big of a sheet. And gotcha. they won't make it any bigger. Um, so uh, anything over 30 inches is just can't really do it. I'd have to find different material. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, something small like a Dusak, I think, um, is doable. It j I just need some more R&D to make it right. I've been messing with daggers. Um, I still oh, I'm sweet. working on a batch right now that I think is going to work really well. I've made a couple that I wasn't happy with, but now... I'm trying to. I'm starting to figure out different ways ways to manipulate it that I think will make some good dagger trainers where you don't have to worry about, uh, as Eric Lowe says, turbo murdering each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. So, but that's that's another really good. So, I'm I'm sitting there thinking to myself, okay, I need to commission a Bolognese dagger, which is about 18 inches long, right? So that's perfect. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We can, you know, <laughs> but. Um, Mostly because, you know, like the dagger trainers that we used at, at uh, Queen's Gambit or, you know, other dagger trainers that I've used, that's always kind of been the problem too. You know, you see, especially like from the Bolognese material with, with Murato in particular, when he does his dagger alone stuff, a lot of his situations that he's setting up is kind of catching somebody's dagger with the edge of your dagger. So that way you can then manipulate their arm or their, their elbow or their shoulder and stuff like that. And you just don't get those with plastic that just kind of slides yeah. off one another. They yeah. bounce and slide, yeah. Yeah, I mean, all good all good martial arts, at least with weapons, seems to be finding a way to catch their weapon and strike them as they're trying to regain control of their weapon. 
Yeah. We need a we need a good single-handed sword sharp simulator somewhere. That's one of my my future quests and goals. Or just use sharps and chainmail, I guess. <laughs> you could do that too. Get a shark suit. Yeah, if you could find somebody you trust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so let's see. Where are we at with this? So it seems like HEMA attracts a lot of people with military backgrounds. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. One, the camaraderie in HEMA um, in schools and between schools is unlike anything I've seen in any martial art group that I've ever been a, a part of. And for people who come out of the military, one of the biggest things that for me and other guys that I've talked to is losing that platoon mentality when you leave. You know, you had that platoon of people that, whether it's just regular day or in combat and everything in between, you always had those people. You had that group. You had that community. Um, and when you come out, you lose that group. You lose that community, and you're on your own again. Um, so when you find something like the Warriors of Ash... Um, or like TSG, or just really any of the schools in the Piedmont Historical Fencing League. Um, it, it's such a great community. And then we all come together and you realize that, oh, it's not just my school. It's the entire region that we have is a great community of people that support each other and want to do this thing. And so it's like you go from being in a platoon or in a company to being on your own and then you find something like HEMA and now you have your squads and your platoons and your companies again of good people that are coming together. Except that they're not being forced on you. It's people that you get to choose. Right. So you don't have to deal with the asshole factor anymore if you don't want right. to. And generally <laughs> from what I've seen in our community, like those types of people generally get weeded out because right. we are all here to be good to each other right. and to learn this art that can be dangerous. And if we're not good to each other, people are going to get injured. Um, yep. Yep. <clears throat> and also on the other side of it, you know, guns versus swords, you know, like rifles are really cool too, but swords are better. And like that concept of like, you know, <laughs> when you're with modern day warfare, a s extremely unskilled person can push a button or pull a trigger and take out somebody who has been training their entire lives. Right. Right. It does. You don't need skill to be effective. Um, it definitely helps, obviously. But when it comes to like m melee martial arts, your skill matters. If somebody is unskilled and they attack you, they are going to generally lose. Right. So, like, it, it, it comes down to more of, like, if I train at this and I become really good at this, then it matters individually. Yeah. yeah. You can be the best marksman in the world, but if you turn a corner and someone puts a shotgun in your face, you know, from, like, 20 feet away, there's nothing you can do about it. You're just going to get shot in the face. Right, or some guy shoots off a piece of artillery five miles away and his shell happens to blow up near exactly. you. Like, it doesn't matter how but great if somebody, you are. But if somebody draws a sword and goes to attack you, well, you can draw your sword and attack them, and it's like you're meeting on a more equal ground, and your skill matters more. Yeah. 
you know, there's there's lots of historical anecdotes of that always being, you know, the sort of the the death of virtue and warfare. Yeah. You know, and that, like <laughs> how much their their goal is to try to keep the loss of those knightly virtues, I think, from like diminishing in society. Well, it even goes back to Roman times. There's I can't remember the guy's name, but there's this one Roman commander when they ended up conducting a siege and during the siege they ended up using um, very advanced catapults and to basically tear down the walls of the city and he said war he said the virtue <laughs> of warfare is dead right because <laughs> they didn't have to climb walls and and go fight on a parapet anymore they could just bust down a wall i mean he's like oh. you know this isn't so <laughs> you made it too easy yeah damn it that's <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, I remember there was a the, the Romans apparently had an office for advanced machines in war, and they shut it down. I think right around 100 AD, because they thought that no new weapons could ever be developed ever again. <laughs> oh man! I know craziness, yeah. right? We've come a long way, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know so, if it's for the better. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, probably not. So do you think your military experience might have led to, or do you think your military experience might lead you to approach HEMA differently than if you hadn't served? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we have these sources, right? And these sources tell us how to do all the things that we need to do. At least the good ones, right? They're always missing something that we got to try to figure yeah. out. But they're telling us, this is how you do it. This is how you should do it. And generally, it works. Um, what I've learned in the military is they give us this book, right? And we learn that book, and we do it by the book. We do everything by the book. But then once you actually get into combat and you're using the things that you learn from this book, it doesn't work right. Mm-hmm. And you have to adjust it and change it. Like, I would take my team, and when, like, uh, all the higher-ups were watching us, we would do um, specifically like house clearing and room clearing uh, tactics. We would be doing it by the book, you know, all the step-by-steps like they teach us. And as soon as the higher-ups would leave, I'd pull my guys aside and be like, all right, now you know that. Now I'm going to show you how we're going to do it when we're actually over there. <laughs> and it was like the concepts are there, and it's good to learn those basics and learn what the book says, but that is a perfect environment. Right. There right. is no perfect environment in combat. It is chaotic at best. And so you have to do things differently. It's good to know those bases. It's good to know how the book is read. It's good to know what the the people are telling you and, and what's going to work in this perfect environment. But then you have to realize, all right, no environment is perfect. And when I go out there, I'm going to have to adapt and change almost everything. But I'm just going to keep that in the back of my head of that's what it was in the book. So I think for for us, specifically since Mike and I are running our school, we read these manuals and we see what they say, but then we also don't have an attachment to them because we know that once we get into the combat, use those the best you can, but you're going to have to adapt it. You're going to have to change it. You're going to have to make stuff up sometimes because that's what combat is. At least that's our experience. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's been my experience as well. And, and Stephen, you can perhaps speak to yours. Um, but the, I, I, you know, I remember when I first started HEMA, 
I would go out, and especially in tournaments and things like that, I would try to do plays like as they were written. I think everybody has, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You, you go into a non-cooperative environment, you try to do a play from start to end, or maybe you're demonstrating a play for somebody and they're like, well, what if I did this? Or what if I did this, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, but that's not what the play says. And then they're like, well, okay, well, that's what I would do. And you're like, right. well, you know, that's not what the play says. Well, just, shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like, <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's that level of adaptation. And I think you find, I mean, even f- from my perspective, without a military experience, um, you know, I, I find that I've had to learn to adapt and, and apply some level of creativity. Of course, my framework and, and the foundation of what I'm doing is still within the text. But, you know, one of the best and, and most freeing things that I've ever done is to just focus more on uh, like the idea of reading and adapting. And perhaps this is something that's really brilliant about, um, in particular, like the KDF manuscripts is that, or uh, manuals is that, or treatises, whatever they are, um, <laughs> is that once once you get into that, the concepts of fuel and, and hard and strong is really where you're kind of like flowing off of, and they kind of right. create that decision point. And and maybe that's there's a, there's an aspect of brilliance there. Um, you know, I, I see that in the in the Bolognese manuscripts as well, and that's the way that I approach the the Bolognese manuscripts. But um, for them in particular, it's not as explicitly stated. Um, you know, so I just, I thought that was interesting. What about you, Stephen? Well, you guys probably won't like my answer, but I kind of think that the answers are almost in the, almost entirely in the book. It's just that you have to work the book so freaking hard and you have to, you basically have to, you have to, well, for me, I have to approach the book as though the book works and, I work in as non-cooperative an environment as possible. So I, when we do a book technique, we'll we'll like, we'll do it, and then we'll try to have somebody, as many people as we can, try to break what we just did. So it, it'll be based on you know there'll be some parameter like they're in this guard, you're in this guard, and they're not in the motion of doing something, and then we do it, and they try to break it, and you know that's sort of how the cream rises to the top in what we do. Um, I'm also kind of blessed that I don't have a large group of beginner students I have to teach. It's just most of the time it's just me and one guy that I've been working with a couple times a week for six years. So we're able to really kind of just dig in deep to stuff. Um, and then I always, I work on the basis that everybody, uh, that I try to do this against should try to double against me and it has to be double proof as well. But it means that you have to go. You have to go into the book like you're a Bible scholar, trying to tease out the meanings in the Bible, <clears throat> and that has led me to have somewhat different interpretations uh, than the standard, and that makes the book stuff mostly work in sparring. Although I'll just add this one little bit: it doesn't work to the very end. It mostly creates situations in which a person is completely unbalanced, and then you extemporize at the very end, and they're so screwed that it doesn't really matter. That's been my experience. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, mm-hmm. I kind of that's how I, I view like Manchialino's first book a little bit is is just an opportunity to create those unbalanced situations. So that way, you can go into his his stress his pressa techniques and grappling being the true art. That's how I avoid doubles. Right. <clears throat> Love a good grapple. 
Oh man, they're the best. It's my favorite. Yeah, my favorites are the ones where you gently and you know you gently tug the sword away from their body as you spin away. So you're holding their sword and your sword is there in guard, and they're trying to figure out how to like block your sword with their hand. That that always feels like the most boss move ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I guess you know it's just. I was just talking with Kurt the other day and, you know, he brought up the fact that I think it's Fiori says that you can only ever really understand about one sixth of whatever material it is that you study. And that's why he decided to write his material down. And then, you know, Marazzo says echoes something similar where he says, you know, something along the lines of I've written this book. So that way you can go back and remind yourself of the things that we've studied. Um, so, you know, I think that there is, I, I agree with you, Stephen. I, I definitely think that there is uh, sort of a method of trying to make the techniques work, but um, there are kind of like you know mental limitations as to what all you can stuff in. Right, and it, there's the sort of fact that we all have to have grown-up responsibilities and can't devote ourselves to the craft like we should be able to. <laughs> right. But I mean, with yeah. with all of us have been doing this as long as we have, right? You know, we've you know learned the manuals and gone over the techniques and done the basics so many times that at this point it doesn't even really matter what object you put in my hands yeah i can make it and adapt it to work with any of the techniques that i've learned i can do longsword techniques with a stool like it doesn't really matter at this point anymore because we have that muscle memory i don't have to necessarily think of the technique i've just done said techniques so many times that it doesn't even matter what I have the concept of right body mechanics and an object works regardless of your situation you just have to adapt it right and I think that's the thing about the plays is they're a way of compressing truth into a book they're not actually to be done themselves they are they're a way of recording information that you can recreate and then adapt to different circumstances Yep, and if uh, you find yourself three quarters away through a play at one point, you're like, "Oh, I know what comes after this." Right, and then yeah. you get there. It's like right. you may not have gotten there through the play, but you ended up in a situation that you've done before, and you know how I can move away from this while protecting myself and defeat my opponent. Right. I mean, in the end, when somebody's sword is waving around all crazy and they're trying to run away from you as fast as they can and you're still moving forward to guard, it doesn't really matter what the play is at that point. You've created the, the tempo that you want. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, you know, for us is, as moderns, um, that's really challenging is to recreate, uh, when we're trying to recreate the arts, is that there's very little sense of danger. Um how different do you think fencing would be if your opponent was trying to harm or kill you? I think it would be different in multiple different ways, really. So when you know we get into, and we can probably see this, it, it depends on the person as well. Mm-hmm. Like even when we're in our tournament setting, right? There is not a threat of death. Right. Right. But people are reacting to that stress differently. Some people come in there very calm. Some people come in there and just berserker attack. And then you have everything in between. Um, I think if you bring the threat of death and sharps come out, I think those things just become more exaggerated. You're going to have the people that are so scared 
that they're just going to charge and trying to get it over with as soon as possible because they don't know what else to do. <laughs> that blind rage of right. I am going to overwhelm them because I want out. Right. I don't want to be here anymore. And then you're going to have the opposite of like, I'm going to go really slow and take my time and I want to make sure I make no mistakes. And it'll like, when, uh, not this last year, but the previous judicial duel that you guys did uh, at October Effect. <clears throat> yes, it was exaggerated, but I thought that concept of there was a lot of nothing happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because each person is afraid to attack. Because if you yeah. mess up, you could die. At, at the minimum, you're getting maimed if you mess up. So it's like you have, you know, I, I've been in so many real physical altercations where you're staring at each other and you're taking your time. And then there's the opposite of somebody just rushes you and it's just a flurry of violence. Yeah. And, then and those, it's over fast, right? It's over fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's either over fast or it takes a really long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess that's why we there's you know there's duels that look like they sometimes went on all day. Yeah. I think they I think the I believe if I remember correctly the duel between Guido and Hugo even has a snack break in the middle. It does. Yeah. Well, and one of the swords one of the swords one break the swords and they take break. a break. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean this has been nice, were, but. Well, I mean, think about it. If you were if you were in that situation and somebody offered you a break to chill out, right? Absolutely <laughs> totally take, take it. You're like, oh man, uh, yeah. I need to take it down a level. <laughs> no, but I mean, you're right. You know, and I think that's that was kind of the the purpose of exploring the experiment of running the judicial duels unarmed, and Max the Max uh, Fishman, the guy that runs our our kind of sets up our judicial duels for October effect was so excited that this year's judicial duel ended on the first exchange because he was like, mm -hmm. now we have the complete historical narrative, right? We have two guys that just want to swing at each other right. and just end up doubling and both cleaving each other in the head. And then the year before we have the two guys that are like very prudent and they're just kind of like, I'm not going to overextend myself. I'm not going to put yep. myself in danger. You know, that's uh that's super interesting. And, you know, like, I think we can see that in some way in like the personalities of some masters too. You know, I know that from uh, a lot of the German sources, they, they talk about taking the four and, you know, whether or not people are misinterpreting that as they need to be the ones to strike first and really need to go in there and, and, you know, just, it creates a lot of those, those, mm -hmm. I'm going to rush in and just kind of, you know, be the, uh, the berserker, as you said, but um, kind of folks. But, you know, I, I was reading through a little bit of uh, Manchi Lino as I was waiting to start my class um, yesterday. And, um, you know, one of the things that Manchi Lino talks about, and I think it's the introduction of his fifth chapter, is he's talking about how kind of the art of defense and learning how to defend yourselves, defend yourself well and, you know, with good tempo. Um, actually makes you a more prudent fencer because you can be patient and you're you're sitting there and you're you know that you can cover yourself and you're waiting for the opportunity when it is true to strike and i found that really interesting and i think you know you can see see lots of different concepts built out from lots of different masters and almost kind of pull out the personality um of different authors and how they approached fencing and and what their what their intention was but you know from 
somebody like me at you, you know, I see more of a defensive perspective, which I think is interesting. You know, he, he takes the vor, though. Stringere is essentially just another way of taking the vor, to use it the is. It's ugly German your... term. <laughs> it forces well, them to do something. So you're, you're seizing the initiative by forcing them to do something, and they have to react to you, it. You are indeed, yeah. But you also, you're giving your an opponent the opportunity to either react and attack or to retreat, right? And so you, they're either going to accept shame or they're going to attack you in a right. way that you can take advantage of. Right. Um, but he also talks about, and you know, the Anonimo and and Manchili or and Marazzo in particular also talk about people that will just always run away from you, right? You know, and how to deal with fighting with those opponents. And so, you know, there's this kind of, and and the Anonimo I think probably has the best discussion of this, right? He talks about how. You know, if you're better at fighting going backwards, then that's what you should do. Right. That does a valid right? technique. Then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then he's like, but if you're better fighting forwards, then you should go forward. And and Manchiolino in his introduction talks about what do you do against somebody that just comes at you swinging full on? And how do you approach fighting that person? You know, I mean, he, he basically says that you should just strike into, you know, their, their sword arm as they're going to strike. Because if they're striking with such force, you're probably going to you know, lop it off, but, um, you know, that's kind of his MO, but I think that's interesting Locke, that you have like, you know, like, like you were saying these, these kind of different styles of fighting and these mentality. And I wonder if, um, I wonder if there would be more prudence and caution. Do you think, or do you think that because of the adrenaline, you just have people that were just like, I'm just going to get this over with. I'm, I'm scared. And this is, this well, I mean, is what I need to do to channel that. When it comes to things of like this kind of topic, it, it's so hard to pinpoint even just two things down because every person is different. Mm-hmm. Um, like it can even come down to the hardness of the person as in you cut my arm open, but I don't stop. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Where some people will stop and they'll try to get away. Um, in any any sort of, you know, I mean, when, even when we watch like, probably a bad example, but watch MMA and people just taking punishment, but they take it, they wait for their opportunity and then they win, right? right. So like, even if you are berserking in, if you have the hardness to take a couple cuts and maybe a stab to the gut and still defeat your opponent, yeah, it's not the best way to do it. But <laughs> it's, yeah. If you're thinking of I can play back from this person who is just charging me and you cut them and they don't stop and you cut them and they don't stop and you stab them and they don't stop and they just keep coming. And I've seen that in combat in with rifles of people taking multiple shots and continuing to push forward like nothing has happened. No shit. Wow, that's crazy. Absolutely. That's absolutely and adrenaline a, is a crazy thing. <sighs> it is so crazy. And that's one of the reasons why like we at Warriors of Ash with our rule set at our tournaments, we do not stop exchanges until there is a lights out hit. Doesn't matter how many times you get cut, if you don't hit them in the head with a cut or a thrust or thrust them in the chest, we do not stop combat. Hmm, because that we feel that that is a closer way. It's not perfect, but it is a closer way to get what a fight to the death would be because if somebody cuts you on the hand, even if they lopped off your hand, you're not just going to stop and let them kill you you're going to fight harder more than likely. 
at least from my, from my experience and seeing some of the things that people can go through the amount of body torment and still keep going. Yeah. And I, I think even from like a training perspective, um, you know, you have, I've, I've met students, for example, who, you know, might have a stronger flight response. And so they might react differently when you st first start training, you know, some, a lot of times those people, when they first start training, will probably, um, you know, experience something, uh, getting hit repetitively and stuff like that will kind of trigger that flight response for them. You'll be able to recognize it and kind of give them coaching to get through those experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas some people are just have the fight response, they get hit and they're just like, I'm going right back into you and I'm going right. forward. And, and those are the people that, you know, a lot of times you've got to, you've got to learn how you've got to teach them how to temper their, their right. response because they, they get amped up and you see those people, you can, you, you've fought those people before, right? You, you see that level of escalation start to grow the more they get hit in an exchange until they get to the point where, you know, they're just way out of control. They might, yeah. they might even go red you know, and they yeah. just completely lose it. Um, but I wonder if that has something to do with it too, where there's sort of this innate, whether or not the body is more prone to epinephrine or norepinephrine, which are the hormones that kind of are the responsible for those things where, you know, whether or not you're, you're just like, you're going to take everything that's going to be given at you and you're just going to keep going forward. And I wonder if there's a way to change that and like biologically, like put yourself in that situation where you can actually become the more of a fight oriented person versus a flight oriented person, or if it's just something you just have to live with. Yeah, that's a good question. I would imagine that just because humans are so adaptable, we could probably change it, but it wouldn't be without a lot of work. Right. It seems like yeah. with beginners, they're all either just fundamentally agents or patients by nature. And with agents, you're usually just trying to teach them to mellow it out and have control over that. And with patients, you're trying to teach them to not just run away, but kind of like look for their opportunity and strike. But it seems with all the people I've ever had, they all have an either fundamental, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to attack, or I don't know what to do, so I'm going to wait for you to do something and then pounce on your mistake. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's also super interesting too. Cause like anytime I have these conversations, it, it brings me back to one of Kurt's favorites, um, which I think is Grossman. Is that who it is that wrote on killing? Have you ever read that lock? No. Okay. There's a, there's a book that was written by, uh, I think he's a Marine Lieutenant Colonel. And, uh, basically the, the, the concept of the book is that there are some people that are actually predisposed to um, actually killing people. And it's only like 2% of the population. And the rest are predisposed to not kill people. And so, um, you know, the the book was intentionally, like the, the origin of the book was meant to address PTSD. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you're making somebody do something that they are not inclined to do, um, then they're going to have a response. Right. So how do you start to treat these things? How do you start to address these things and identify them before you put somebody or train somebody to basically uh, circumvent their nature? Right. Right. And so there were lots of studies about how, you know, in the Civil War, most of the 
most of the killing actions that were done in the Civil War were not done with a bayonet because a bayonet mm-hmm. punctured to the, the chest is so personal because you actually see the person's eyes when you're killing them. Uh, instead, they would do it with the butt of the rifle because naturally when you strike somebody with the butt of your rifle, their head is going to turn away from you and you don't actually see, you don't even know if you killed that person, you just know you hit them. So you might have knocked them out. Um, and so for a lot of people, that's more uh, acceptable to their their natural being. And so, you know, and there's like ammunition usage in World War II where uh, during the D-Day invasion, uh, the amount of rounds that they expected expelled versus the number of Germans that they actually killed made the accuracy rate of the soldiers that were landing at like 15%. It was something ridiculous. Um, And they were trying to figure out why. And one of the reasons is because a lot of the soldiers that ended up coming in through the D-Day invasions were relatively green troops. And what they were doing is they were shooting over the Germans' heads um, because it was better to posture and try to get those people to just duck their head down so that way you know somebody within the unit could actually that had the capacity to do that uh, could get around to do that and then the reason i brought that up is because it reminds me a little bit about uh like pietro monti um you know bringing this back to a historical source where you know pietro monti talks about the four humors Mm -hmm. and how they're basically four different types of personalities and that some personalities are more deposed to certain types of fencing you know, so you've got people who are like choleric, for example, and those might be your your people that rush in, or you might have somebody that's more sanguine, who's going to kind of hang back and and just kind of go. Um, and I, I I wonder, you know, like is there something from like your experience where you've even seen that from like your units in terms of like um, whether or not people had like certain personalities that you would kind of relate to like the four humors or, you know, were there people that were more just kind of chill, relaxed or people that were more aggressive? Um, it really, it, they do such a good job at taking away your individualism and brainwashing you into things that, um, when you're getting into like, say you're raiding a house, um, everyone has to react a certain way for it to work. If somebody gets too aggressive and rushes in there on the on their own, well, then they break the cohesiveness of the unit. If somebody refuses to go through the door because they're trying to be more laid back and they're like, I don't need to go in there, then they break the cohesiveness of the unit. And that is so trained out of us to a point where it's not even an option anymore. Everyone just does their job whether they want to or not. Um, Maybe that's more prevalent in groups that aren't as well-trained. Like you get, uh, and I'm not saying this anything bad, but more like uh, National Guard troops who are only training sometimes, or reserve groups who are only training sometimes, versus active-duty military. Um, You might get to see those things. Um, There's definitely more individuals who are more aggressive or more passive on a standpoint of not doing the combat like after you cleared the house and everything's secure then you could see those personalities come out where some people Mm. just you know sit against the wall and they pull their security and they're glad it's over with and then you got the other people who are throwing people around and zip cuffing them and being more aggressive Um, i wonder if you see that 
No, go ahead. Uh, I wonder if it might train if it was or might change if it was a conscription based army. So if you have, you know, the current U.S. Army is volunteer based. So presumably most of the people who do it are understand that they're going to be going into a danger and dangerous situation at some level right. and don't aren't terrified by the prospect of that or maybe hurting somebody if they have to. Whereas if it's a an army of draftees, those are people just that didn't want to do it and are sort of forced to. And they're, if one of their personality traits might then, <clears throat> you know, whether that might affect that. I would imagine it would. Because, yeah, I mean, everyone that was there, even though we were all young and stupid, we all chose, especially during that time period, we were in war in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you joined, you knew you were going over there. Right. It wasn't uh, if, it was you knew you were going over there. Right. Uh, Whereas if you just grab some dude off the street, no maybe he might be more resistant to military training no matter how good it is just because yep. he's not the kind Absolutely. of person that's meant for that sort of situation. Yeah. Now, I mean, do you think that there's a, a lot of times we'll see examples throughout history where people defending their homeland will just put up an amazing resistance, right? Like especially looking at Ukraine, for example. In, yeah, especially in the Renaissance, this is super true too. Yeah. Do you think that there's a level of cooperation, cohesiveness that is developed from a sense of protecting your individual, well, you know, like where you're from, right? Your home, your family, things like that. Um, You know, I probably have more to say about that if I was in the initial invasion. Um, mm -hmm. But by the time I got there, we were so, we had so much control that yeah. even when they did get together and attack us to, you know, for whatever the reasonings were, um, it was so unfair and unbalanced Um yeah, it's, uh, they never, at least in my experience, and I went to two areas that were pretty hostile and they were never effective. Okay. Like, yes, they would do the, the IEDs and stuff and they would blow up trucks, but like, I don't know. Cause there's a lot that goes into it too. Cause we even started doing things like, uh, we created a group called the Sons of Iraq and we paid the locals to patrol the streets and we set up checkpoints and every week we went and we gave them money and we tried to pay them more than the insurgency was. Yeah. Okay. So they would make more by keeping the streets calm than by going and joining the group. So it's like, yeah, people that just want it to be over with, and since I, by the time I got there, it's already been a few years. Um, I, I didn't really see that kind of, we're fighting for our country, you should leave kind of thing anymore. It was more of, I think most of the people that we were fighting were because at some point, either we destroyed their house, killed someone in their family, killed someone they knew, or did something to where it was a personal vendetta, um, which makes sense. And I don't blame them for it at all. Right. Um, I'd be doing no, the same thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually really interesting, right? Because, Stephen, you know, I think from 
the historical narrative, we see this especially a lot in northern Italy from Milan, Brescia, places that were constantly rolled over by the French. And, you know, early on, there's a lot of resistance. There are multiple attempts from uh, the northern Italians to kind of try to take those places back. Um, and sort of these insurgency campaigns that the Italians ran because, you know, that's what you do when a right. larger invading force kind of comes in is you run an insurgency campaign. And, um, uh, you know, eventually it just kind of slowly becomes, you see more and more acceptance of the fact that the French are going to be there and a, a, le- a lack of a willingness to engage so i don't know if i would necessarily agree with that i think so what i've kind of found is the italians would defend their would when it came down to it would defend their cities with their lives but they didn't give a shit about what happened outside their city walls but like in brescia for just for example they had like you know the women of brescia were literally carrying boiling pots of water out from their homes to throw at the french guys that were trying to scale into the city i mean they but on I think the, that's also a difference too of like with my specific circumstance, there were no city walls. Right. Yeah. There's just neighborhoods. And it's, that you know, doesn't there was yeah. no keep or castle to defend that gives you an advantage. It was we were so ingrained and had air superiority, land superiority to the point of like you know, right. Going into fight with a shotgun versus a twig. <laughs> It's not, you, you can fight and they did, um, but it was not very effective and it didn't really do much for them as far as taking things back. Right. You know what I mean? Like they fought. Right. And, you know, they did it for the reasons that they had. Um, and I'm sure for each person it was individual. Um, but they never won anything besides maybe a few casualties. It was essentially just like they were just like mosquitoes, kind of. They were just sort of there. They were an irritant. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, there was a lot of uh, American and Allied soldiers that died, but um, they never, at least when I was there, in my experience, they never like took our base back or took a city back. There right. was never them taking anything. It was just skirmishes now and then that we always won, and every now and then they'd win a small skirmish. But then 15 minutes later, we took it back because, you know, we'd send in missiles and helicopters and, yeah, it was just so unbalanced. Yeah. I guess the city walls. Well, give I mean, oh, go ahead. Well, I think from like, especially with like the, imagine if in that situation, though, all of a sudden Russia decided that they were going to take the opportunity to fight a proxy war and they came in and just started arming and sending their troops to train and like oh, yeah. kind of what we're what we're doing right now with the U- Ukraine yep. like, and them fighting the Russians, right? Yep. I mean, we're giving them the training, the expertise, and the weapons that they need to actually contend with a large power. And you know, that's kind of what we end up seeing from the Italian perspective in the narrative. Is eventually what ends up happening is when Charles V ends up taking power in, in the Holy Roman Empire, you know, he becomes the the balancing force that basically removes any hope of the French kind of maintaining control of Northern Italy, because then you have an empire, a Holy Roman empire in particular, that just has the willpower and the resources to come down and basically, you know, change the tone. So like, 
instead of it just being, you know, this one-sided affair, which was, you know, it, I don't think it's necessarily fair because I think the weapons, whereas Locke, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that obviously the weapons were not equal in terms of your experience. Whereas with, you know, the engagements and things that were happening in Northern Italy, the weapons were equal, you know, the, the Italians were just as good right. at making armor and, and swords and pole arms and stuff like that as the, as the French were. But, um, you know, I, I just, I think it's interesting too, you know, speaking from the perspective of like unoccupied people, you know, it drives some really interesting, like creative innovation too. the I think of this one story of like this kid in Brescia who saw his mom get murdered by a French soldier, like brutally raped and then murdered. And he ends up going on and uh, inventing the cube root, uh, like the mathematical concept <laughs> of the cube wow. root, uh, just to make cannon more effective. So that way they could fight against the French. Right. And wow. that was the other thing about the, yeah. the Germans is they were, they were not, they, they weren't necessarily liked by the Italians, but the French had a tendency to really make enemies wherever they went because they were so arrogant and had such a really rude class-based society, whereas the Germans were kind of more laid back, I guess you'd say. They were not, they did not tend to make as many enemies when they came into a, an area. Anyway, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I I took that in a, a pretty deep direction, but thanks for thanks for that, Locke. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, so to wrap this up, we always kind of ask this question in general. Um, it's fifteen oh nine. You've be you've been called to serve in an infantry formation. Uh, which pole arm would you choose, and what kind of side arm would you arm yourself with? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, for polearm, I would either go for like a bardiche or just a regular old poleaxe of any type. Um, and probably for my sidearm, I would want a messer and a hatchet. Nice. I love those axes, huh? I love the axes, man. <laughs> <laughs> They're fantastic. Awesome. Well, excellent. Uh, All right, cool. Well, thanks, Lachlan. Yeah, no, that thanks was that me. was really great. Thanks for your insight and uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, appreciate you doing it. It's a, uh, I think, um, getting experience from people, especially uh, like what we're talking about, modern day combat experience, and trying to relate it, is really the closest we're gonna get. Because we don't have anybody from that time period that can tell us what it was like to fight in a in a battle with swords and axes and um, yeah yeah we still need to have some duels happen in the modern day so we have some good data to draw from but that's probably <laughs> that's going to be a while in the future I'm guessing. <laughs> do you think the duels coming back, Stephen? <laughs> I do, I do. We're going to get rid of guns and replace them with swords. I hope so. Yeah, make skill matter again. That's right. And make a better society, maybe. There you go. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Um, appreciate it. Yes, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks a lot, man.
And that concludes another episode of Le Arte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. We want to thank Lachlan Colores again for coming on and sharing his wisdom and experiences with us. If you want to check out Descendant Leather, we'll have a link to Descendant Leather posted in the show notes. Um, by far the best pole arms in the country, so highly recommend that you go and check them out. Um, next episode is going to be with Devin Borman talking all about pole arms. So stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends. Thank you.